Uh, what's up, everybody? This is Mind Your Money with Miss Be Helpful, a show that highlights people and stories that will inspire you to get your money right. Today, we have Amanda Holden on the show, who is from, who she has an Instagram platform and a blog called Dumpster Doggy, which is so freaking awesome. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. You're so close, but so far. I know, my goodness. Well, actually, now I, uh, Jamil and I got an apartment in Jersey. It's like 20 minutes out from the city. But when I was in Bushwick, uh, it was like so, so crazy. I was close to my family, loved it. But then we got a cuter apartment in Long Island City, which wasn't so bad. Our first year, our rent was like a really good deal. And then, of course, when we had to renew the lease, they snuck up on us, added all these fees, added all this stuff. And like the rent went up. And I was like, all right, we're not doing this. This is insane. But yeah, I mean, you know, we got more space and we pay less rent. So I'm I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I was wondering why you moved so far away from me. I know. I was actually really close um, to you before and now meh, not so much, but uh, yeah, no, it's not bad at all. Before all this coronavirus stuff, I could just hop on the path and be in um, World Trade Center at the World Trade Center stop on Fulton, 15, 18 minutes, door to door. Like it was so quick. Um, yeah, of course now I'm not going anywhere. So I want to jump into some fun stuff. Obviously I want you to talk about your story and your brand and all that good stuff. But I always like to start the show with two fun questions, which is one having to do with regrets and one having to do with like not having any regrets and loving the way you spend your money. So the first question is if you could think back to a time where you made a purchase or you spent money on a service or an experience and it was way too much freaking money, like you regret it to this day, what would that uh, situation or story be? Oh my gosh, what a great question to start off your podcast with. <laughs> right? I love it. Uh-huh. I'm like, let's dive into the regrets because I've got plenty of those. <laughs> people that are always like, I have no regrets in life. Oh, I'm like, oh, I really? Know. I'm like really? really? Come on, come on. Yeah, I've always got just a handful. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that I was like one of those, like it's it's you know what? I'm not going to say it was embarrassing. It's kind of typical. Like I was one of those 20 somethings who like the second she got her first big girl job and got that first big girl paycheck, um, went a little bit nutso. And I was like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I was for a, at least a good five, six years, like a pretty big jerk about Aww. spending money and it's, it's, it's okay. And, and I've changed a lot since then. And we, we can talk about that. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was, more or less lighting money on fire on a pretty regular basis through the beginning. Dang. Well, that was me too. Let me stop. That was definitely me too in my early twenties. I just didn't know any better. You know, we, 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 we didn't know what else to do with our money. No, we, we didn't know any better. And, and also your, your prerogative at that time is to like make the most of life. And so like, if that's what you were doing, then like, uh, it's, it's all okay. But there's, there's one story and I would file this in the regret category. And um, it's not necessarily like a huge purchase, but um, I had these earrings. They're yeah. by a designer called Mercedes Lewis. She's a Colombian designer. Definitely check her out. Beautiful stuff. And I had wanted these earrings forever, but they're pretty, ex they're pretty expensive. Okay. And so like, think like three, $400 earrings, which like I would really not ever generally spend that much. Yeah. I found a pair that went on sale. I was like, you know what? I've been saving up for these earrings. I really want them. I'm going to buy them. So I bought them. Yeah. They were on sale. They were, you know, they were a good deal. And I don't necessarily regret the purchase of the earrings themselves. It's what happened um, shortly thereafter. I was, <laughs> I was on a trip to New Orleans with, um, with my sister and her friends for her 30th birthday. No and, yeah. And it was four, four very fun filled nights. On the very first night, um, I did not make it home with these earrings. And I the next morning I was distraught. And oh, you know, God. things were pretty fuzzy the night before. Um, and you know, I was turning over all of you know the hotel room, her French Shoot. hotel room. I got the concierge involved. Like everybody all my earrings, everybody in this whole damn hotel right now, everybody. Come out and start to look for my earrings yeah. right now. Right now, everybody. This is oh our primary goodness. focus. And on the, on the last day, I, I mean, I kind of had to like mourn and get over it and, and, oh and ha have a good goodness. rest of the weekend. Um, right. But on the fourth day, when we were packing up our suitcases to go, you know, Mardi Gras beads and glitter and whatever right. all over the place, my sister drinks looks, in hand, <laughs> my sister looks at me and she goes, Oh my God, Amanda, you gave your earrings to that stripper on the first night. <laughs> no. What? Wait, did she, did it just hit her or did it she just hit her? It just oh, hit her. Like, goodness. You, you know how sometimes you get, you recollect something much uh -huh. later than happened in kind of uh -huh. like a, a brown out. That's coming back to you in pieces. Like, oh, oh, oh. And I was like, oh my God, I did give them 
to to the stripper. No. So, anyways, oh. I hope she's enjoying them. I hope they have a nice new life. Oh my good, you see, you see, this is why I don't like to spend so much money on little things. Like, because like for example, even with I had these AirPods that I bought, the first ones that came out, and I was like, I'm gonna use them for YouTube. They're gonna be a tax write-off because it's gonna be good for me to record video with them and, and when I'm on the go and stuff. It was fine. But then when I was in Europe, I lost them. Like I was on a bus. We were doing a tour of like Pisa, whatever. My boyfriend and I were in Europe for like the month of from Christmas to New Year's. So I, of course, Which we were doing all the amazing, tours. By the way. <laughs> it was amazing. And so then I'm on this bus doing this tour and I get off the bus. I'm like, wait, well, whoa, whoa, where are my AirPods? And like, they weren't in my pocket. They weren't anywhere. And I'm started looking for them. And of course I'm freaking out because these AirPods were like freaking $170 and they're so tiny. And so then I'm like, oh, I come back and I'm so annoyed by losing them. But I was like, all right. I, it's really, really, really actually helpful to do videos with them sometimes because if I have like a script to read, what I do is I'll record the audio on a voice note and then cover my hair and I'll have like, I'll just have my voice in my ear so I can record content without having to like look scripted. Oh my God, that's amazing. So that's it, such that's a hack. My, that's my hack, you guys. That's my hack. So I was like, all right, I need to get them again because it makes a huge difference in my productivity with making videos. But I had to, I had to like force myself to spend the 265 or whatever the hell dollars it was I couldn't get myself to do it and I finally did it in March so like January February March like 90 days passed before I finally said oh my god suck it up and buy these damn things because it's just if you lose it you're having a freaking panic attack because you you spent so much like I bet the moment you couldn't find the earrings you were freaking the hell out like like you especially because you were saving up for them like that's the thing it's like oh well and it's just one of those things where like you kind of send yourself into a, like a little bit of a shame spiral afterwards right. like like how could I be so irresponsible and and how could I be so so dumb but like now looking back I'm like whatever I mean like right. who cares you, I hope yep. she I mean because I kind of remember and this is like something that I always do like if you tell me like you like my earrings, I'll I'll be like, oh sure, you can have. I mean, like you can have them. I don't care. But like you know, in a more sober state, I might not like rip them off my ears in order to give them to you. And so maybe, oh maybe it's not the earrings that are the regret. Maybe <laughs> we gotta do some self reflection here on our personality traits. It's giving to giving. No. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. I know that story is hilarious. I was like, wait, how's this tripper going to be involved in this story? I was so confused right now. No, I, I love that. I honestly, and I think too, what it is, is like the regret and the shame kicking in two ways. It's like what you did to lose the thing. And maybe you shouldn't have spent so much money on the damn thing in the first place. Right. And, and, and then you beat yourself up and it's like, you, it's not even worth it. Like forgive yourself, wipe your, your slate clean and start fresh mama, because it's like, it's just going to make you crazy. Oh, yeah. it, it will absolutely make you crazy. And that's such a good point is that like you may be hurting in the days that follow when you make a money mistake, but most of the time with most money mistakes, give yourself a week and you're going to, you're going to feel fine. And so mm -hmm. like acknowledge the feeling, but also know that in a week or in a month, you're going to feel a lot better and move on. That's right. This too shall pass. Um, okay. So on the flip side of that, what is a time where you spent a lot of money? Maybe somebody else looks at your budget and they see that spend that like line item and they're like, Oh, you are crazy to spend that much. I would never, but even till this day, you're like, well, I'm glad I spent that much and I stand by it because it was worth it for me. What would that be? Sure. So this, this takes up multiple items, line items in my budget, but probably the most expensive thing that I did last year, which there were plenty of financial experts who had a lot to say about this, was <laughs> I upped and moved to the most expensive city in the United States of America, New York City. So That's I funny. actively made the decision to move to New York City. I moved from Portland, Oregon, which is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. um, I did live in San Francisco. That's where I worked in investment management. And yeah. so I'm no stranger to an expensive city. Nice. Um, but at this point in my life, in my career as a freelancer and a writer, there were a lot of people who were scratching their head being like, all right. Why, lady, why would you do that? Why would you do that? You're giving mm -hmm. money advice and you just moved to New York City where you regularly spend $18 on a cocktail. <laughs> Literally. And that's on the cheap end. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. That's honestly, that's the thing about New York city. That is the most, like, I feel like I can live pretty frugally 
yeah. in most ways, except for the bar scene, man. Oh yeah. No, it's crazy. I honestly, I was telling you earlier before we press record that I have a wine subscription because it just got to the point where I'm like, all right, I'm going to these restaurants or to these bars and I'm spending literally four times what I, sh- what I would spend at home if I just bought the bottle because per glass or per bottle, you, they like, they just like, I think it's like a four or hundred percent markup per like glass. I mean, if you were to just buy the wine and pour yourself a damn glass of wine at home, you could save so much money. I, I slowly got to the point where I'm like, all right, I can't be doing this bar hopping. I can't, cause it, I mean, it just, it just takes so much money on drinks when I could just enjoy the wine that I like at home. Yeah. I mean, that's my, that's just my thing. That's where I am right now. But yeah, I hear you. It's hard because the, the drinking, and then it's also the social aspect of it. Like everybody does drinks or happy hour or all this and, you kind of, you get mixed up in it and it's hard to be like, I'm not going to spend any money at a bar. Like really, really. <laughs> right. Well, and I, I actually try to give myself some grace here as well. Like I'm a single person that just moved to New York city and I moved here because I want to be surrounded by the most interesting people in the world. And I'm not going to get that if I stay at home. I also don't really know anybody here. Like I moved here with very few friends. And so the fact that like, going to bars is such a big piece of my budget is really okay with me. It's, it's part of like what I'm trying to do right now. And like, unfortunately so much of like the sitting down and really getting to know one another and socializing Mm -hmm. happens in this context of bars. I wish that we as a culture were better about meeting outside of bars and having these, um, you know, deep let's get into it get to know each other types of conversations outside of bars but that's kind of where it happens and so like you know what like so what like that this is what I'm here for well we're not doing it right now of course but this is what I'm here for and and you know long story short I don't regret moving to New York City for even a second yay well I love that and funny enough uh fun fact uh that Amanda moved to the neighborhood that I was born and raised in. So Bushwick, and I remember when I first found out you were living in Bushwick, I was like, girl, I got a list. A li- I got like two pages to send you of places you got to hit up, delicious food to eat, like all the art you can see. I mean, there's so much that's changed in Bushwick, but there's certain staples that are still there that you just cannot miss. And, and so I remember just being so excited to like tell you all the things. Oh my gosh, <laughs> so fun. I'm gonna have to revisit that list and buy a few gift cards so we can make sure that those businesses stick around. Yes, that is literally so true. I'm gonna I, I have to do the same because my family is still there. But I moved obviously to a different apartment with my boyfriend. And I just feel like I haven't been to Bushwick since honestly, like before I left for my trip to um, Europe, which was in early December. So it's just like, Oh, I gotta Yeah, I gotta do that. Thanks for that that reminder and that like, nudge for me to do the same thing yeah of course you gotta, you gotta support local businesses um cool so let's go back a little bit and talk about um early childhood memories that you have I'm always curious about people's upbringing because I feel like your first money mindset ever comes from and is like rooted in those early experiences that maybe you don't realize it is but I, I truly do believe that those kind of signs of your early money mindset come from that those seedlings and you know that were kind of sprouting when when you were young so what are like either there are early money experiences that you remember having or money lessons that you learned. Did you guys talk about money in your home? What was like growing up like? Yeah. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So um, we never talked about money at my house. Mm, just like but, me. Yeah. But, but it's interesting because I also came from a comfortable household and, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't like if money wasn't being fought about you know, yeah. money was really only being discussed behind closed doors. Us, mm-hmm. the kids were not brought into these conversations at all. And, and really it was just, you know, it was pretty platonic for yeah. the most part. And so I would say that considering if you look at the wide spectrum of experiences that people have, platonic mm-hmm. is a privilege. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I didn't grow up with a stressed relationship with money, but I also mm-hmm. didn't grow up with necessarily any skills uh, surrounding money. Um, and this is, and this is, you know, this is me growing up in a household with a father who is a mathematician. So my my father is a mathematician, and specifically, he's a statistician, and yeah. he is an actuary. Which all of my wow. all of my non financial goober friends and listeners, an actuary is essentially the person that works on big pension plans. So, for example, mm-hmm. I think Medicare, like. Who is managing the money? And more specifically, who is calculating all of the the statistics that go along with it? Yeah, and predicting, you know, what the right next move is for companies. How many clients do they need? What Because there's so much statistics and and prediction about, like, 
the numbers and how much you have to project forward in order to cover your bases. Like insurance companies do the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, actuarial. And then there's so many exams they have to take to be able to become an actuary. Man, your dad must be like a math person through to his core. Yeah, and he really wanted to push that on me. He was like, you're so good at math and there's always one right answer. I was like, dad, I don't think you get it. I'm kind of like a bullshit the answer type of gal. So math <laughs> is not going to work for me. <laughs> oh, goodness. But point is, he is this great theoretical mind, um, extremely smart guy, but I never knew what a 401k was before I started working. Um, Um, And so if I I like to use this anecdote just to tell people like, if you also grew up in a household where you were never taught what a 401k is or, you know, how to manage your money, just like, no, you're not alone. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. It's so, it's so true. And, and for, in my, in the context of my work, like I do a lot of personal finance work with high schools and with um, teach high school teachers to try to get them to kind of teach this stuff in high school so that the kids don't go make crazy money mistakes when they're 18. Like I did, like, I'm sure you did like so many people do because we don't learn it in a formal context. Um, or like in an educational setting. But, and I tend to, you know, assume because there's so many statistics that show that when you grow up in a household that's middle or upper middle or, or upper class, um, that you're, you're having money conversations at home, or at least you're being exposed to money decisions and money conversations that aren't happening predominantly, in, you know, in the, obviously it's a generalization, but largely aren't happening in low income households like the one that I grew up in. And I, and I tend to find out that as Yes, as a statistic that might ring true, you know, all the studies show that. But the more I talk to people one-on-one, like the lived experiences that I'm getting from my like, friends and from people that I share with me. No, I grew up upper class. I grew up upper middle. We never talked about money, you know. My own boyfriend, like when I first met him, he had no credit. He, he had a debit card and that's it. He didn't have a student loan. He didn't have a credit card. And I was like, um, sir, what, 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 what's going to happen when we want to get a house one day? You don't have credit. Oh no, no, no. We need to fix this ASAP. And, but like, you know, and he didn't grow up low income like me. And I feel like that was one of those eye opening moments for me. It's like, you cannot assume that just because someone comes from a certain house or a certain background, that they have this exposure to money, that they're going to be ready, that they know all the things. It's just not, it's, it's not the case. You can't assume that about anybody. No, no. And, and in fact, I, I would agree. I, I, w- I would think that the studies would maybe show something opposite in that low income families, there are so many trade off decisions that are being made about how to spend money. And children are very often involved in those conversations for better or worse, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it seems like I mean, the low income people that I know are the, the some of the best people at managing their money. Because we're thrifty, right? We're thrifty. We figure it. We have to be resourceful, whether we like it or not. <laughs> whether we like it or not. <laughs> Truly, that's so true. Yeah, I mean, I see that with my parents. Like, they grew up in a in a developing country, Dominican Republic, and they they didn't have. I mean, really anything. Like, my mom always tells me she had two pairs of shoes: one to go to church, and one for whenever they went out, or they, you know, like she had to if she did go to school, but she didn't really go past like I think the first or second grade because they were they had to work on the farm and stuff. And so for me, it's like when I think about that level of like poverty, and I think about you know, she talks a lot about the decisions that were being made, like coffee, they had to trade and barter things like coffee and plantains and figure out, you know, like all these moves, because financially, that was the only way that they could feed all the mouths. And it's just funny to me, because I think even now, my mom doesn't have a lot of money, my family doesn't have a lot of money, but they know how to make smart money choices sometimes when it comes Mm -hmm. to figuring out what's really important, you know, compared to other things. So you're right. I think that those trade-offs really do teach you uh, critical thinking when it comes to making decisions about money um, and what you value. But you got to know how to prioritize. So yeah. Yep. 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 So, okay. So you guys didn't really talk much about money. So you got a little older when, I mean, maybe was it your first job? Like when did it strike that you were like, Oh, I need to, I need to know what a 401k is. And I need to know how to, you know, make my money work for me. Like when did that happen? When did that strike? Sure. So I feel like I kind of fell ass backwards into it because I started working out of college at an investment management firm. And so, yeah, so my background is actually in an investment management and Mm -hmm. I graduated right into the last recession. So I've been through one of these before. Um, And I, I was working at the firm for no longer than like six or seven months before they laid off about half of the firm, wow. um, 70% of my department. And um, 
and things really stagnated from there. Um, I was in an associate role for a couple of years, but then ultimately they moved me into this position called investment counselor. And so basically what happened was um, an investment counselor, I should say what the role is, an investment counselor was somebody that worked directly with our high net worth clients. So I was actually speaking to these people on the phone. So keeping them apprised of portfolio strategy, answering questions about the market, getting to know their personal financial situations. I mean, basically yeah. what I was doing was like a lot of handholding with old rich white guys all day. Yeah. And that was, that was yeah. pretty much my job. Um, and just to be clear for people who maybe aren't aware, the, the purpose of that is to make sure that they don't freak out and pull all their money out of the stock market, right? Because that's essentially what investment companies and wealth management firms try to do is to try to get your, your clients to say like, hey, this is normal. This is part, economic downturn is part of the economic cycle. Don't call us and, and ask us to take all your money out of the stocks because that's just not like, let's let's talk about this, right? Is that kind of like what that type of counseling uh, looks like and sounds like? Yeah, it, we, I mean, we were doing a ton of that, doing a lot of triage during um, the market crash in 2008, 2009, which yeah. just for a little bit of context, the stock, the US stock market was down 55% in 2009. Um, we are at about 20% right now. At worst, <laughs> it was a little bit more than 30%. Um, yeah. As of the time that we're recording this, um, yeah. who knows by the time this comes out, what will be what will be true. But I mean, it was absolutely one of those scenarios where uh, you hear this during market crashes. Um, it's different this time. This time is different. Yes. This is the time that the system collapses. This is the yes. time that stocks go to zero, that stocks yes. lose all value. And we just had to beg people. We had to beg our clients to believe that that wasn't the case. And in yeah. fact, every time you have a stock market crash, there is somebody saying it's different this time. It's going to go to zero. The system will never recover. And so hopefully that's just helpful for, any, for anybody that's listening to know that we're probably going to get that this yep. time. Yep. And so just do know that it historically, at least, has always not only recovered, but moved on to much higher heights. But yes, yep. my job was essentially to get people to see straight, um, which is very difficult to do because, yep. to, to be fair, our brains are hardwired to with these fight or flight mechanisms, which um, were really wonderful in keeping us alive for many, many thousands of years as <laughs> right. people when we had to right. fight, fight mountain lions and protect. And you our... see a lion, you run like that. Yes. That that's what that is. <laughs> right, exactly, and we are actually like chemically driven and hardwired to take action in the face of danger. Right, and so, if right. you see your the value of your nest egg drop it's literally causing a chemical reaction within your body, um, run, it's releasing run. adrenaline, right? And, right? and it's saying, get, fix it, fix it, do something, get out of here. And so right. our natural inclination is to change it. But the, yeah. the reality is our brains, our, our, our cave woman brains are not really matched up all that well with capital markets. Mo modern economic markets, oh, right, right. Exactly. And so just kind of trying to train them to think about it a little bit differently. That was part of my job. And then also, yeah. you know, explaining, explaining the mechanics of the portfolio was my job. And so anyway, we really got off track about your question, which was like, when did you start to like actually pay attention to money? And like, I started mm. to pay attention to money because of my job. I'm right. not sure that I, I mean, I 100% would not be in this position that I am now, where I am now taking the information that I learned at the investment management firm and using it to get to underserved populations like women, um, people of color, anybody left out of these conversations because these That's conversations right. are so often reserved for people that are already wealthy. That's um, right. But so that's kind of like the, the quick trajectory of my story. And so naturally I started paying attention to it a bit more myself, but like, to be honest, even as somebody working on like the front lines of a investment management company, yeah. I still did not really have everything figured out in my own personal life. Mm. And I think that that's, that I see happen a lot too. Like just because yep. you work at a business or work in finance or, you know, work at a bank, like does not mean that you have your shit together. That is so true. Oh <laughs> and, my goodness. And so for me, really the, the big turning point was I actually, like, even though this job was really great in that I learned so much and I can now take that information and do good with that information. Mm -hmm. um, but I really hated the job. I mean, like helping rich men get richer was just not <laughs> going to be my calling. And <laughs> I kind of am also like, you know, I got the econ stuff like on lock. I got like the money stuff, the math side on lock, but I definitely associate more as like a creative type. 
Yeah. And so like coming in and having to like talk about money day in and day out was just not really it for me. And yeah. also the workplace was pretty toxic. And so, yeah. so on January, January, yeah, January 1st, one year, I just decided, you know what? I'm not, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so I spent the next eight months saving up every dime. I Please had. Save, wait, 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 wait. I need you to say that again. In January, you decided you were going to leave, but it, it was an eight month process of preparation before you could even actually go. Okay, for people listening, this is because I did a similar thing where I decided my job, I was unhappy, but I couldn't just leave that day. And there's so many people that hate their job and you plan to leave, but you gotta, you cannot leave if you don't have your money right. This is why conversations like this are so important because if you have your money right, you have the choice for what to do with your time because the money's there to to protect you, to to be there to support you. But eight months preparing before you made the exit. Okay, sorry. I just want to underscore that, but go, go ahead. No, and it's such a good point. Like, I think so often we we see these courageous decisions to like become an entrepreneur or to leave your job or to move or whatever. And like, the reality is it's all floated by money, right? That's right. That's and right. so like, it's easy to be courageous when you have a little bit of cash. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it was, you know, I had like my 401k savings and, you know, I was getting by, but I didn't want to tap into my 401k savings, of course, to leave. And, and at the, at the time I decided I was going to leave and, and actually travel for a while. And that's what I did. Um, mm-hmm. But I wanted enough money to be able to like not have to work for a while and figure it out. Because for me at that point, I was like, I am absolutely leaving the money space altogether. Mm-hmm. I want to start over. Wow. I want to do something different. And ultimately down the line, when I was traveling, I did decide, you know what? Okay. Like I've been coaching all my friends through all of this information. Maybe my work here isn't done. And so I did end up returning and starting my own business. But when I was quitting, I was like, uh, uh-uh, I am out done. of here. And so, yeah, it took eight months of being just like, so bare bones, so scrappy. In fact, that's where I got the nickname dumpster doggy. My coworkers at the investment management firm who knew about my plan. So like my guy friends, I worked in a department of like, basically it was like 200 men and me. And so like my, uh-huh. my little crew of guys started calling me dumpster doggy because like, you know, they'd be, they'd buy all this food for lunch and I'd be like, Hey, Nick, are you going to have an afternoon? Can I eat the rest of that sandwich? Because if not, I will gladly take it off your hands. Yo, that was so me before. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so like, I, I totally like plugged up the faucet as far as social spending, which was huge. Absolutely no shopping, um, which is hard. Like, I'm not going to pretend like it's easy. Like shopping is obviously something that we are conditioned to derive pleasure from. You, you know what? You're, while you're describing this, because I also, I did the similar thing when I was trying to get out of debt. Like I had to pay off $20,000 of credit card debt. And to do that, I had to like basically no shopping like packing lunch, eating leftovers from my friends at work, like just that kind of stuff. But it's funny because I think now everybody is starting to understand that sacrifice because we have to look quarantined. We cannot go out and spend the money. We cannot go hang out, go to happy hours. We can't go to the movies. We can't go bowling. We have to stay in the house. And it's funny because now I'm starting to feel like now y'all understand my struggle back when I was on that, you know, journey to try to save that money and get out of debt. Now you guys see what it's like. And also, I feel like this is also probably going to help some people to to be able to save a little. Unless, of course, if you are struggling because you've lost your job, of course, obviously, there are so many things that you've got to do, like get unemployment and, and, and seek resources and funding. But if you have your job through coronavirus and you're home, this is a chance to save money. Essentially, you're forced to do what Amanda and I had to do to stack money, to get out of debt, to save money. And and that, you know, it's hard to do. Right now, people are doing it because they're forced to. But we did it when we we weren't, we didn't have to. We chose to. And that is even harder. It's, it is harder. But you know what would have been even harder than that was staying at this job that I hated. Mm. And, and so it's, it's interesting because I was in a position that I would say is maybe unique in that like I hated my job so much that really doing something along these lines was really my only hope for survival. Whereas Mm. I think most people aren't in such a dramatic position. Like they may not love their job, but they don't hate their job. And like, they understand that they have to work and no work is perfect. And so I, it's, it's difficult to inspire somebody to take real action. But like, I, I will say that throughout the process, I, I did learn, like, it's the, 
the delayed gratification, it's like, it's hard to work for, but it is very much there. Like I cannot even describe to you the, the feeling, the high feeling that I had the, and a lasting high, not like a quick, quick hit. It was like a lasting high that I had walking away from that workplace for the very last time. It was, wow. it was, it was pretty incredible. And so just, you know, if you're working towards something, it can feel like a slog. It can feel like you're treading water, but at some point there is a breaking point where it starts to feel really gratifying. Yep. That's right. I love that. And you got, I mean, that the, the ultimate thing that's going to keep you going is the light at the end of the tunnel is that you know that when you get to the end and you've completed this goal that you set yourself, set yourself out to achieve, that you're going to get that reward, that thing that you wanted so bad, which for you was your freedom, your time to be able to not have to report to this toxic work environment. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you had a couple of guys that were like your, your cool friends, but like for the most part, if you don't even have that, then it becomes, you know, the kind of thing where some people even have depression because of their jobs. So if you're that miserable, I think the immediate step is to to start saving for sure, to try to make your exit um, or, you know, at the very least looking for other jobs because that sounds so, so awful. Um, okay, so then you decided to leave, you traveled for a bit, you started doing your own thing, but then you realized like, oh, I'm giving all my girlfriends this advice and they're telling me like they need it and there's a market for this. Let me go and blog. So did you start blogging about it and then it sort of became courses and other things? That, and so, I mean, I've done it all back backwards. So basically when <laughs> I was deciding, hey, you know what, I'll, I'm going to turn back around and get this information to the demographics that I care about, like using uh, humor to teach, using our language, not trying to sound smarter than I am, just being like, you know, I'm just like a some random ass chick that happened to learn this information too. Let me, let me hook it up. Yeah. Um, um, and so I actually started by writing a book, which is unpublished because basically you have to have like a million social media followers to get a big book publishing deal. So, um, right. yeah, I'll let you know when that happens. But so then I was, and so then I was kind of like, okay, like, I don't know how to get Twitter followers. Like, what do I do here? And I was like, you know what? Mm-hmm. I think for me, teaching live in like a live workshop format is, is my bread and butter. I would say that that's where I shine because then I can turn it into like a little comedy show and like (laughs) practice my jokes. And so, um, so I started doing that. And so my, I have kind of two things going on and that's my business, which is called invested development. And so invested development started out as live workshops, but then of course I needed to have somewhere to send people. So that's when the dumpster dog blog came. And then also the social media, um, as you know, you know, mentioned it's at dumpster dog doggy on Instagram. I do tons of free education there as well. And so, yeah, just trying to get, people information in a couple of different ways because I know that we we all learn differently. Mm-hmm. I just have found particular um, success in not only live teaching, but also um, live virtual teaching. So I've yeah. I've been a Zoom master for a few years now. And before, before Zoom was trending. Before <laughs> I know how to tell jokes into uh, a completely muted Zoom classroom. Oh my God. No feedback. Seriously, it's um, so bizarre. It's so bizarre. I know I was telling a friend, I was like, well, I've got practice in real life when nobody laughs at my jokes. <laughs> so oh I've been working goodness. my whole life for this. Um, <laughs> but so it is, my course is being converted into videos now, but I just wanted to, to bring it up just because I think that there is something about live learning that is so particularly useful because you then set aside a time in your calendar, you know, you have to show up and be present or you might miss something. And to me, that's just so much more conducive to learning than a video uh, or like a video course, just because like, you know what people do when they buy video courses, they don't do them. Right. And so I'm going to start offering it, but just because like not everybody can be on the same, same time schedule. And also like, um, you know, I can't, teach everything live it's it's really traveling all the time especially right now it's a good time for people to take advantage of the free time at home to do online courses for sure for sure and like of course it is a wonderful valuable resource if if you can get yourself to do it um i don't want to (laughs) like discourage people from buying my very own course (laughs) but but what we're talking about here is promo or self-sabotage i don't know which one (laughs) i'm such a self-saboteur it's true (laughs) I've known, um, but uh, but the question was about like what's the journey been like for you and like my entrepreneurial journey has been, um, you know, 
a roller coaster without a doubt. And so that's kind of what I'm doing. Just always trying to find ways to get this information to people. That's amazing. I love that. And the thing that I think makes you so different, and for those of you who don't follow Dumpster.Doggy, you gotta on Instagram at least because your videos are just so funny. They're quirky. They're colorful. They're bright. They're fun. You always have text over it. I mean, it just, it's such an easy way to just get digestible little bite-sized piece of information that get you started on becoming interested in the financial stuff and the investing and knowledge. And I mean, just, it's obviously a hard entry point for some random person who's really not like who finds it dry and stuff, but this, through this way of learning, it's like so much easier to get hooked. So yeah, definitely guys follow her, like love everything that you've been posting. Oh, and, thank you. Um, and I got to do a better job of checking out some of your blog posts because I also feel like that energy and that hilarious vibe of your Instagram is probably all over your blog. And yeah, I know it's there. It's there. Yeah. Um, the blog definitely suffers though, just because um, people love, people love reading the mini blogs on Instagram, you know, right. it's like it's, it's right in front of people. And so um, the blog has not been getting as much attention as it deserves, but mm-hmm. we'll get it going again soon. I got, I got time over here. Yeah, right, right, right. We got all the time. You got to put like little teaser snippets on Instagram and then be like, go to go to get the rest of this. This is just the, if you want the meat and potatoes, this is just the juice. You got to go over that way. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Okay. So then now let's talk a little bit about how you kind of like, you, you got to this point where you started to, to, to put these courses together to do in person. Now you're going to do this online course. And like, what, how did you decide that it was like seriously going to be this thing that like, you could spend all your time doing and you're going to go full entrepreneur because there's, there's, there's a thing, you know, there's like a, I'm going, I mean, obviously you saved the money to do that. And that was the ultimate goal, but there's this other thing happening where it's like to be an entrepreneur, you got to have a lot of runway and you, or you got to have a lot of connections. And like, so for you, was it ever like scary? Did you ever doubt yourself? Or did you know, like, nope, this is what I'm going to devote all my time to when I'm done traveling, the money that I saved that that I have left from traveling, this is all that I'm going to do. Yeah. So I, it, for me, my entrepreneurial journey has not been that cut and dry. And in fact, the first two and a half years that I did this, I also worked as a bartender. Okay. And bam, there you go. See, something else had to have been happening to yeah. be able to become that entrepreneur. It's not always so easy where, oh yeah, I saved up for eight months. I traveled a little bit and then bam, I became an entrepreneur. That, you know, usually there's more to it. So you were bartending for two years while you were building the business. Mm-hmm. Totally makes sense. Yeah. So bartending for two and a half years while I was building the business, because I mean, for me, I was kind of slow. Like I wouldn't say that I have some, like, I, I, I'm, I'm not like a salesperson, I guess. Like, um, I think that I'm good at some things, but like, um, there are elements of like being an opportunistic business person that I'm just not super good at, especially because, you know, the reason that I'm doing this work is, because I want to democratize this information and yes, I deserve to get paid as well, but it's, it's been interesting for me to find what that balance is and like, where can I charge? What do I give away for free? And I wouldn't say that it came away. I wouldn't say that it came easy to me. And so there was a very long runway and a lot of, a lot of nights spent at the bar pouring drinks while I figured it out. That makes so much sense why you're bar hopping all the time, girl, because you belong back at the bar. You were there all the time. That's your like, that's your home. That's where you like go right back to being comfortable. Like, hello, you worked at the bar for two years. That makes so much sense. Yeah. (laughs) There's so many good bars in Bushwick. Bushwick is like, just, I mean, obviously every little hole in the wall, you think you don't know what it is. It's probably a bar. (laughs) It's probably a bar. Yeah. I got a couple local, local favorite watering holes for sure. Oh man. All right. So what I want to do is I want to pull up a question. I get questions all the time, like email DMS, and I'm sure you do two people just like asking. And so I always, you know, I'm like, Oh, if I have a question, I'm not always sure. Like, you know, it's always a good idea to kind of throw, throw other people in the mix. So sure. question came from somebody named Christopher who said, Hey, must be helpful. I'm wondering what your opinion opinion is on how uh, many ETFs one should have. I have a Roth IRA uh, and I have four ETFs. I'm not sure if there's overlap in my investments and if that's something I should be worried about. What do you suggest uh, for me handling the situation? So that makes sense that he's uh, worried that he has multiple funds. So he kind of has like multiple things that he's investing in and he's worried that there's like overlap. So like this one fund that he has has maybe five companies or 10 companies and then this other fund that he has one of the same companies from the other uh-huh. group he invested in is also in that so it's sort of he's like double dipping money into them uh-huh. that is a valid concern what, what would you say to people that are worried about that sure um well i think chris has the absolute right idea in investigating this so 
what's important to understand, so an ETF is an exchange traded fund. Mm -hmm. So can we just go right into like a little bit of a lesson? Let's do a mini lesson. Okay. What's an ETF? Let's do it. You're right. Because I think that answering this question requires really understanding what an ETF is. Mm -hmm. And so in general, an investment fund, and it comes in two forms, there's mutual funds and there's exchange traded funds. So an exchange traded fund, um, and I should say they trade a little bit differently, but at the end of the day, a fund is a fund is a fund. A, A fund is essentially a big old basket of some other investment type. So it could be a big old basket of stocks or a big old basket of bonds or a big old basket of real estate holdings. Yep. Or a basket mix. So you have one basket with stocks and bonds in there, like more than one thing that you're putting your money towards. It's a mix of a bunch of them in one basket. Right, exactly. And so this question could never be answered without me knowing what funds you hold and what are the underlying investments because for example if you hold one fund that is all brazilian stocks and you hold one fund that is all chinese stocks then no of course there's not going to be any overlap right? right but if you hold a fund that holds the 500 biggest u.s company stocks in america and a total stock market fund, then yeah, you're going to have an incredible amount of overlap. And so whenever you're investigating, like what funds should I be holding? The first thing you got to do is crack those bad boys open and see what is being held inside. Because more important than the structure of the fund is what is the underlying investment? So I always like to compare funds to suitcases. So like, (laughs) And so the the mutual fund, the exchange traded fund, it's just like the hard suitcase that holds everything together. But what is packed inside those suitcases is really what's going to dictate like the flavor of the journey or the investment journey that you're about to have. And so like imagine two different travelers packing two different suitcases. So the first traveler in their backpack, maybe they came with me to, or in their, in their suitcase, they came with me to NOLA. So what was they packed? They packed a sequin bikini, some Mardi Gras beads, like maybe like, you know, a creepy mask or something. So that's- They need a flask. Yeah, they got to put a flask in there. A flask, whatever it might be, <laughs> right? And so that's Traveler A. That's what they've packed in their suitcase. And then consider somebody like Traveler B. Traveler B in their suitcase, like maybe they packed a cable knit sweater, some earplugs, and a nice read that they picked up at the airport. Like clearly these two people are about to have very different journeys, right? Very different vacations. Don't don't get those two suitcases mixed up at the airport. Um, But the idea is like the exchange traded fund is just the hard shell of the suitcase. Like we got to open it up, understand what's inside. and And then we can answer that question. And so now, understanding that, I don't want to like gloss over the answer to that question because like, what what would an expert recommend? Well, I would say that like the most simple um, and maybe most popular strategy that exists out there for investing experts is to do a really simple, and this is if you're doing like DIY investing, to do yeah. a really simple like two or three fund portfolio where you right. literally buy one fund or ETF that holds bonds, one that holds U.S. stocks, and one that holds foreign stocks. stocks. Yeah, international foreign, yeah. And so you could keep it super simple and do something along those lines. But again, it's really hard to know if you have overlap in those four different funds that you hold. That said, having a little bit of overlap is also not the end of the world, especially if you're using ETFs that are index funds. Mm -hmm. And so almost all ETFs take this index form, which an index, so originally, like we think of index funds as an investment now, which they are, yeah. but in indexes, indices is actually the proper plural way to say it, which I hate. <laughs> Let's get real academic. Let's get real academic. Indices. <laughs> indices. Like, right, can we petition just to change it to indexes? It makes me feel like a guarantee. <laughs> Anytime I say indices. Um, but so an index was originally created just to measure stock market performance. So the S&P 500 is probably like the one that we all look to the most to understand what is happening in the U.S. stock market, because it really just takes the average of what we we call it 500 leading companies. It's really the 500 biggest companies in in the United States of America, just to have a measuring stick, just to see how it's doing today, tomorrow, this month, and over over time, right? right? 
But so index funds were created to mimic the index. So now you can also just buy an investment that mimics the index. Mm -hmm. So you can buy an S&P 500 index fund. That's the most literally have the 500 companies that are on the list from that index. So it's essentially like, oh, if I don't know what to invest in, let me find a list or an index that has a bunch of companies chosen for me by some, you know, by the, the list of the index. And then I won't have to do all this research on my own to figure out which companies I want. I'll just get a fund or a basket of companies that has the companies in there that are on that list. That's, that's literally what it is. And it's in the simplest way possible to explain it. That's what's happening when people go to index funds because it makes things easier for them. So they don't have to choose companies on their own. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a genius and easy way to invest. It's also historically been one of the best performing ways to invest. And so um, that's the great news is that I think Chris was his name. Chris is already on the right track by keeping a super simple index fund ETF strategy, which each of those investments is inherently diversified, which is so great. Like you don't have to spend a bunch of time building out your own portfolio of stocks, which is of course a lot more work to do that on your own. The reason I do bring up that using index funds and in specifically when we're talking about overlap is better is because index funds are really super low cost and there's not a lot of turnover within the funds, right? Like you're investing in these companies for the long term. Of course, they will change a little bit over time, but there's no active manager. So compare that to funds where behind the scenes, behind this veil, there is somebody who you will never talk to in your entire life who does not know one thing about you or your your, your investing preferences, right. who's making active decisions about what gets held in the fund, like they buy and sell in order to try to do better than the index. That's right. That's, that's the whole point of active management. And so with mutual funds specifically, you can get them in two varieties. You can get them in index form and you can get them in actively managed form. With ETFs, you typically only buy index ETFs, but there are starting oh, that's right. yep, to be are. more actively managed. So you need to know. So actively managed, again, somebody's trading within the fund Mm -hmm. to try to beat the market and that service comes at a cost so it will be more expensive but the the issue again with overlap is if you buy two different actively managed funds which i don't think that this is what chris is doing and that's why i said but that's why i said like if it's if it's index funds if it's index etfs you don't really got to worry about it too much but if you own two actively managed funds those managers are not speaking to one another about what their strategy is Mm -hmm. so you might have one manager who is selling mcdonald's stock you might have one manager that is buying mcdonald's stock and so so it just comes at a net cost to you, That's right? Cool. And so these people might be working against one another. And so it, that would be my main concern with overlap is using actively managed funds. I'm just not a big fan of actively managed funds Here. anyway. No. <laughs> Same. And no. People, know, people watching my YouTube videos, those of you listening that have or watching that have watched some of my videos about investing, you know I'm just like Amanda. I'm not a fan of actively managed funds because for average everyday people like you and me, it is probably too expensive, probably not as accessible. And so for people who have tons of money, have tons of wealth, sure, go talk to an active manager. That is certainly, you know, more for you, but average everyday people, we need to be focused on saving money and building up as as much uh, wealth as we can so that when we're ready to just retire, just like our parents or grandparents, whatever aunts and uncles have are doing that we will be set up for a little bit more success because we've built up something, some, you know, a little pile of money that's going to be there waiting for us to be able to use it to live. And that, you know, for me, that's long-term investing, having a solid strategy, and just checking up on it every, you know, once in a while, maybe once a year or every two years. But other than that, you're not really doing much. You're not really touching it much. So having an active manager, they're, they're doing all this stuff in the account, buying and selling. Why, why? You should just leave it there and just let it grow for a very long time. At least that's, uh, you know, my personal opinion about how I invest. And obviously Amanda agrees. But I think a lot of average everyday Americans think that they have to pay managers to get the, the best investments. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I tend to disagree. Yeah. And I would say even for wealthy people, I... I mean, if you are going to hire somebody to actively manage your investments, whether it's built into the fund or you go to a person who is going to be like a wealth or investment manager for you, you better understand why it is that you are paying them the fee that you are about to pay them. Because just like returns compound over time, 
fees compound over time and it can add up to a lot of money, especially if you have a lot of money invested. And in fact, I would say that most investing experts, even most of those people that would be happy to charge you a percent to actively manage your portfolio, I guarantee you that they invest in index funds themselves. I bet you they do. I, I bet guarantee you they do. And this is a nice, this is a nice um, a story that I like to, to tell people. So like even LeBron James, when LeBron James got his very first signing bonus, a lot of money, first time, um, but also like a really smart guy and wanted to know how to invest it and you know, secure his future. And so he went to Warren Buffett, who is probably like the, you know, he's like our, our living investing legend, OG, whatever. And so he's like, hey, like, Warren, what do I do with all this money? And Warren Buffett literally told him, you should put it all into an S&P 500 index fund. That's right. That's right. And you guys who don't know, I have a video about this exact conversation between LeBron. Yeah, like LeBron James literally reached out to him and said, what should I do? And then there's a whole news segment about Warren Buffett's response to LeBron. And he's like, you know, a person like LeBron with all this money, he should do this and this and that. And then the way he explains it, it's literally like what Amanda was saying before, where like nobody knows what the heck you're saying, Warren, because you talk like like you're so smart. I mean, obviously you are super smart about investing but the average everyday person doesn't know that terminology and lingo so my youtube video i literally broke apart everything that he said and broke it down what does that mean what warren said we don't know what those words mean let's break it down you know he's like like, oh you gotta have a lot of cash reserve what the heck does that mean that means a savings account with a lot of money in it but he doesn't say it that way so we get confused right so that's why it's important to break these things down but I, i love that you brought up that story because that is literally what we need to do as people who we have access to money through our paychecks or whatever through birth money or through an internship whatever source of money you're gonna you're gonna have coming in you get that money and just like LeBron you have to ask what am I supposed to do with it because if you don't know like LeBron wasn't sure don't be afraid to ask and that's that's what I think is like the big takeaway from that story is that even LeBron people think of him as like oh wow he's a G he's got all this money he wasn't he did not you know he came in with his tail tucked between his legs and said LeBron uh, Warren Warren I need you to help me make a decision about what to do with this money you're smart you made a lot of wealth I want to know what you're doing and what you recommend you know what I mean so that's what we got to do. We got to ask for help. We got to ask for help. And uh, please link to that, sh- that yes. video in the show notes. <laughs> I will. I will do that. I'll do all of that. All right. So I like to wrap up the show. This, first of all, this was such a fun conversation. I freaking love talking to you, Amanda. Like, I wish I had four hours of free time to just go into all the stories about strippers and all the mistakes about investments and all the things. Um, but I like to wrap up the show with this really fun question, which is um, if you could change what, well, actually I'm going to do this on Photoshop. I'm going to remove George Washington's old face off of the dollar bill. I'm so sorry if that offends anybody who's super patriotic, but I'm going to put Amanda's face on the dollar bill instead. And over Amanda's lovely, beautiful face is going to be her money mantra or her money message or her money slogan, whatever it is that you want everybody who touches money or has a dollar bill or sees a dollar bill or transacts with money to see uh, what do you want your dollar bill to say? I want it to say, for women, building wealth is a radical act. Yes. I feel like I need to put on the track with the little Hamilton track, like women in the sequel work. Like, I feel like I just need to play that on repeat while you're saying your money slogan. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Amanda, tell them, tell them where to find you. Sure. Well, the easiest way to find me is on Instagram at dumpster.doggy. I'm also dumpster doggy on Twitter. The blog is called dumpster dog blog. And that's really the hub. If you're interested in my course, which is called invested development, you can find it on dumpster dog. Um, just go to the course section and it'll give you all that information. And, and yeah, I, w- I would love to have you check it out. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you.